Good morning, everybody. The other mornings I've felt a bit underdressed, and today I feel a bit overdressed. Now I've got long sleeves on today, but never mind. Uh, it's lovely to see the sunshine and to feel the warmth again. And uh, it's good to uh, be able to share this uh, final session with you, this uh, part three of the little journey that we've been taking together under this title of Rhythms of Grace. And uh, the first session was about coming closer. We talked about living on the circumference of life because of the busyness and the rush and the pace of life and how those three disciplines of stillness, silence and solitude help us to come back to the center to find God again. And then yesterday we thought about how to go deeper into that relationship with God through the disciplines of reflection and Bible meditation and uh, also contemplation. So uh, today we're going to uh, look at how we can stay there, how we can live our lives from that centered place in the midst of our busy lives. There are quite a few seats over this side if anybody wants to be brave and come over here. There are seats over here, quite a few. Just over here, there's three, I think, three seats over here. There's seats on the front as well. Sorry. You can't hear? Can you not hear? It is on. Maybe the volume needs uh, turning up. Maybe they've turned the volume down. Can you not hear at the back? Can you hear now? You're hearing. Okay, I'll try and shout then. So this is the big question, I think, always when I'm teaching these things. The question that is in people's mind is, how does this work out in the midst of a busy life? I think people imagine that I live in a monastery or something, that I live this cloistered life, that uh, I, just, I just glide along feeling peaceful and at rest and, and so on, that I don't live a busy life, but my life is as full and a, as packed as anybody else. And I could compare my diary with yours, if you want, to see who's the busiest. But life is busy for us all, isn't it? And the question then is, how do we practice these things in the midst of ordinary, um, everyday life. I like to describe myself as a contemplative activist, if you can work out what that means. <laughs> it means I am an activist, I do want to achieve things, I do have a lot of things that I'm involved in, so I'm not sitting back and doing nothing all day, but I hope that I operate from a place of rest, that is that because I'm connected to God, my busyness is flowing out of that place of intimacy with God. That's what I mean by a contemplative activist. And that, I believe, actually is the only way to sustain life in the modern world. It's to be anchored in God at the center of our being, and then to let the river of living water, which Jesus promised to give us, well up within us to eternal life and then flow out from us. That's the the picture that we have. In John, in John 15, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. It will happen naturally, uh, normally, without effort and striving, because you are connected to him and he's connected to you. His life in you will cause you to bear fruit. Fruit in all kinds of ways, in terms of character, love, joy, peace, and so on. But fruit also in terms of a life which becomes a blessing to other people. So that because you are knowing yourself to be loved, you are able to give love to other people. That's the only way it can happen. 
because we are receiving that into ourselves. And ministry is about actually sharing the love of God uh, with other people. So today we're going to look at staying centered, um, how to keep that place of abiding in Christ. And then a lot of practical pointers for you today, uh, which you've got on your sheet there if you were lucky enough to get a sheet. Number one is this. Take time to review. Something we don't often do, to take a review of our life, where we are, what's going on in us, what is God saying to us in our life. And in particular, I think sometimes we need to stop and think about, first of all, our concept of God. Who is this God that we worship? And how do I think about him? A.W. Tozer, a great spiritual writer, once said that your concept, your idea of God is the most important thing about you. Because according to how you think of God is how you will respond to him. We've been learning this week about a God who loves us unconditionally. A God of grace and of mercy. And if you're in the Bible reading just now, again we had presented to us in a wonderful way this God who comes to us in our brokenness and in our need, in our despair and failure and depression, and gives us something to eat and says, have a good sleep. This is a God of compassion and mercy and grace. He doesn't say, come on, get hold of yourself, get a grip, get back on the saddle, as it were. He actually understands our human frailty. He's a God of great mercy and compassion. That's the God of the Bible. But many of us, we don't have that picture of God in our heart. We conceive of him sometimes like a policeman who is, you know, hiding behind a bend in the road with the speed camera just waiting for you to come round and step out of line. And many of us live with a kind of God, which is not the fear of God expressed in the Bible, which means reverence. It is this kind of thinking God's out to get me. He's not on my side at all. He's a fault-finding God. Or a God who is always angry, who is kind of, you know, likely to explode in a rage at any moment. He's very touchy and unpredictable. But God isn't like that either. Or a God who is always demanding more from us. A bit like Pharaoh. You know, he asks you to build, make bricks without giving you the straw to do it. And it doesn't matter how much you do with God, he's never satisfied. There's always more that God is asking from you and so on. And if that's the kind of God you have, then of course you will constantly be trying to please this God and be on his right side and by what you do and your efforts and so on. But God is none of those things. And sometimes we need to stop and ask God to show us, is, have I got the wrong idea of you, Father? Even to say the word Father for some people is difficult because the word Father conjures up an image of God which is far from the Father heart of God himself. For many years, I, my own concept of God uh, was not accurate at all. I was brought up in a coal mining village. My dad was a miner. I'm the youngest of five. And uh, in Yorkshire, the one thing you never do is kind of uh, praise your children so that they become big-headed. So even if you love them, you don't actually say it. Or if whenever I got a report from school, uh, my dad would say, well, you could do better. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was silent in terms of approval. And I lived for many years with a God who was silent. 
I could not imagine that God would want to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Even when I was a missionary, living in Malaysia, giving my all for God, I thought the only time that God would affirm me would be when I died. And then he might say, well done, good and faithful servant. But I never expected him to say that to me now, in the present, until I realized that that that's not true. God is a great God of love and mercy, and he affirms, as he said to his beloved son, this is my beloved son at the baptism, didn't he? He affirmed his own son. Jesus needed to hear that word of affirmation. And so do we, and we have a God who rejoices over us with singing, who delights in us, and who wants us to know that we are his beloved children. And that's the second point here in this uh, taking time to review. Not just your concept of God, but how you see yourself, who you understand yourself to be. Uh, Ian, Ian and I, we both studied at London Bible College, actually. I've, I'm sorry to say that I was quite a bit ahead of him, so you can tell how old I am. But uh, he studied at the same Bible college, and he spoke in one of his talks about what he called worm theology. Did you hear him say that? He talked about you know, those people so down on themselves so aware of their sinfulness and their wickedness and so on that they feel, in, before God, I am just a little worm. And I remember that was quite prevalent in many of the students at Bible College. And I remember this, this one student, he was, a, he was a big lad, bigger than I am, and uh, he stood up in the, in the college prayer meeting and he prayed like that. He said, Lord, we are but worms in thy sight. And I turned to my friend and I said, that is the biggest worm I've ever seen. <laughs> but that often is how we feel about ourselves. We're so focused on our sin, our failure, our shortcomings, our inadequacies, that we cannot believe that God actually delights in us. But you know what the Bible says about us? It says that we are God's children. In fact... We are God's beloved children. He delights in us. Here's a verse for you to look at later on. Zephaniah 3 verse 17. You need to hear the Father's song that he rejoices over you with love. That he finds pleasure in who you are because he created you, because he made you, because he has redeemed you and saved you. And you are his beloved child. And here's another one. 1 John 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You're not even just a child of God. You are a beloved child of God. And the love of God is towards you and he delights in you. Yes, he knows your weakness and he knows your failure. And yes, he's wanting to change and transform you. But first and foremost, the bedrock of this relationship that we have with God is that he is a loving God and I am the object of his favor. This is my beloved son, the father said at the baptism and at the transfiguration. And he says that same word to us. You are my beloved child. And with you I am well pleased. That changes everything in terms of your relationship with God. This is a God that you want to be intimate with. This is a God that you want to know. This is a God that you're not afraid of. You can draw near to him. Because he is so towards us, so in favor of us. So we need to take time to review and maybe sometimes have a spiritual spring clean. Because with the passing of time 
and the events that happen in our lives, sometimes, if you like, the channel between us and God, it gets a bit clogged up. All kinds of things can come between us and God. And without realizing it, the flow of his life has been hindered. I've just passed uh, my retirement. I turned 65 in March. So I had a little sabbatical and I'm kind of working part-time now. But I had a three-month sabbatical. So I had a list of jobs that I was going to do around the house. Things I never normally do. I don't have time to do these things. So the first job on the lift was to clean the gutters. We have a little bungalow, so at least I wasn't 20 feet up. But I was still perched on top of this ladder, a bit dangerously, I think, actually. But I survived. But, and, I, and I did it. I cleaned the gutters, and I was really pleased with myself and proud. But, but the amazing thing to me was the amount of stuff that was in these gutters. No wonder the water kept overflowing. There was, you know, years and years of rubbish that had collected. And sometimes it's like that in our lives, isn't it? Many things have collected inside us. Little hurts, disappointments, areas of unforgiveness, a little bit of bitterness here, a bit of jealousy, a feeling of hurt, somebody slighted me a little bit. And then we wonder why our connection with God is a bit spasmodic. It's a bit like Wi-Fi, you know, sometimes you can't get that signal, can you? And sometimes it's like that with God. So the first thing we need to do is to stop and review who is God, who am I in relation to God, and what's going on between us. Take time to review. And maybe this week will be a stopping point for you so that you can do that. And that leads into the second point, which is about practicing the discipline of stopping. The discipline of stopping. We, we live in a world which is always constantly on the move. And one of the things that we are afraid of is to slow down and actually to stop. Because we feel if we stop, we're going to get ta- somebody's going to pass us on and we're going to be left behind. So instinctively we have a fear of stopping. This is my little, dis- this is my little definition of stopping. Stopping is pausing for a few minutes or a few hours, or a few days, to remember who I am, why I am here, and to receive strength for the next part of the journey. Now, I could do a whole day with you, just unpacking that, and often I do teach a whole day on the discipline of stopping, because that's a wonderful definition. But what it means is this, that in this busyness in which we live, we need to make sure that we pause from time to time. Sometimes it might just be for a few minutes. Even in the busiest of days, we can find a few minutes when we pause and we reconnect with God and make sure that we are living this life that is receiving from him and then letting it flow out from us. Just even for a few minutes. Sometimes if we plan it carefully, we might be able to spend a few hours, a morning, an afternoon, an evening when we give ourselves just to cultivating this relationship. Friendship with God is like any other kind of friendship. You have to cultivate it. You have to develop it. It doesn't just happen. And so sometimes choosing to take a few hours in the course of a week may be just the thing that we need to do. 
And then sometimes we can even be as daring as to take a few days. And I've spoken already about the benefit that I see in people taking retreat. Having a few days away. In order just to be with God, to slow yourself down, to become still and centered upon Him, and just to be able to, yeah, reflect on your life and find out where you are. It's an investment of time, but it's a really worthwhile one because you will return to your jobs, or your work, your responsibility with a clearer mind, clearer understanding of what God is asking you to do, and... Uh, and a closer relationship with him. And the three things that come out of that discipline of stopping. First of all is that we might remember who we are. And I've already given you the answer to that question. Who are we? Who is, what's our identity? We are God's beloved children. That's who we are. We don't find our identity through what we do. Your, your identity is not that you're a teacher or a doctor or, or whoever you are or a minister. Who are you? You are God's beloved child. That is the heart of your identity. That's who you are. Get hold of it so that that determines how you will live. You will live according to your identity. So if you know that you are God's beloved child, that's how you will live. And we need to keep reminding ourselves and coming back to it and finding it in a deeper, more personal way. And then it's about... Um, Having time to reflect on our purpose. Why am I here? I'm here to serve the purpose of God. But what is it that God wants me to do? So I need to review and reflect all my activities because activities just tend to gather, gather in momentum. And if you are a, a particular person who likes to be busy, you probably collect a lot of activities. It's like a hobby some of us have. <laughs> One activity on another. And we never stop and review, am I doing more than I should be? Am I doing things that God is not asking me to do? And we end up with this great pile of activity. I told those of who were here on Tuesday about my friend who I met on retreat recently, a 77-year-old lady, late in her 70s anyway. She said, I'm up to here, <laughs> meaning I'm overwhelmed. And I asked her, well, write down for me what you do Monday, Tuesday, when she came with this long list, one and a half pages of things that she does every day of the week. No time for herself in it whatsoever. And that's how many of us live, and we need to stop and review. Are any of you old enough to remember Cracker Jack? Okay. Anybody here on Cracker Jack? I, I've asked that question many times. I've never found one person who was on Cracker Jack. I always wanted to be on Cracker Jack. But I think people on Cracker Jack were always from the home counties. You know where the home counties are, near to London. Never from Yorkshire. I never got the chance. Anyway, but on Cracker Jack, you know, this game for children on TV a long time ago. They used to ask questions. If you got the question right, you got a prize, a Meccano or some, a train set or jigsaws, things like that. And the children used to stand with their, their arms out, getting prizes and so on. But if you got it wrong, they gave you a cabbage. <laughs> so they would hold their arms as, this would be a good game for the young people here, wouldn't it? You know, instead of putting pies in their faces, they could do a crackerjack thing. Anyway, they stand with this great pile of things until eventually they drop something. And I often think that's how we live. We gather things activities, responsibilities, duties. 
And some of them are very good, and some of them are the things that God wants us to do. But frankly, some of them are cabbages. We're doing them because we feel we ought to. We're doing them because nobody else will do them. We're doing them because we've been pressurized and manipulated into doing them. And sometimes they're long past their sell-by date. And we need to stop and review and say, okay, I've got this list of things. Which, which is it time to let go of? In order that I can be more focused on what God is actually calling me to do. And then the third reason we stop is to receive strength for the journey. Because like Elijah, sometimes we run out of steam. And that story we heard this morning is a wonderful picture about how we can be restored and refreshed and how God wants to minister to us so that we have strength for the journey. And we, it's those who wait upon the Lord who receive that strength. It's a God-given thing that when I actually practice the discipline of slowing down, that that's when I can receive his divine help and I am strengthened for the task that I have. So it's like an investment of time. I step aside in order that I can see more clearly, know what God is asking me to do, and I've got the strength to do it. Then I can go back, I can re-engage with the world, and I can live this busy life because I am, I'm living out of the divine center. I'm connected with God. That's what makes it possible. I want to skip down in connection with that now to... Uh, to point five, which is about time. Because behind all of this lies your attitude towards time. And each of us has an understanding about time, what time is and how best to use time. And it's what we're always uh, having to decide, really. How shall I use my time? We all actually have the same amount of time but we may not always use it in the same way. So listen to what Paul says. This is from Ephesians 5 and verse 15. Paul says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. The first thing he says is life is too important not to think about it. Don't just live it. Think about it. Be careful how you live. Not as, and there are two ways. You can live as a wise person or you can live as a foolish person. And the foolish person never stops to consider their ways or how they're living, but a wise person does. So Paul says, be very careful then how you live. Then verse 16, he says this, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That used to be translated as redeeming the time. I don't know about you, but I've been to lots of seminars on time management because it's a big issue for people. And usually, time management seminars are based on the philosophy that the world has about time. And the philosophy of the world as regards time is summed up in three words. And you will know this little saying... It comes from a man, I think, called Benjamin Franklin at the start of the Industrial Revolution in America. And it was his advice uh, towards young entrepreneurs so that they could make a lot of money. And he said this, time is what? Money. You know it, yeah. It's rooted deep in your psyche that time is money. Because it is behind business and commercial things. Everything is measured 
and paid for by the hour, time is money. And so the philosophy of that is that if you can be more efficient uh, with your processes, then you can make money, more money, more profit. So you keep actually having to be more and more efficient so that you can make more and more profit because time is money. And in our Western world, time is always something which is, is going. Time is going. We're always losing it. We're trying to catch up with time. It's always running away from us, time, isn't it? Because that's how we think about time. Uh, they don't think about time like that in Africa, by the way. Do you know what they say about time in Africa? Time is coming. It's coming. There's always more time. They say to us, you Europeans, you have the watchers, we have the time. It's true. Time is the one thing they've got more of. It's coming, it's coming. But if you think it's going, you're always going to be under pressure because you're always chasing the clock. You find yourself chasing the clock? <laughs> so I looked up this expression, redeeming the time, because my understanding was that it meant, you know, getting more done in even less time. I had a book on time management, and that was the title, How to Get More Done in Even Less Time. Whenever I tried to read it, it gave me a pain in my chest. <laughs> because it was always, you know, never waste a second, always find something useful to do kind of thing. And oh dear, just makes you feel so overwhelmed before you start. So I looked up this, what does it mean to redeem the time? And actually that word expression, that expression redeem, is a Greek word, it means ex agorazo which means to buy back from the marketplace, to rescue from misapplication or misuse. So to redeem the time, actually, at its heart, it's saying, don't see time as the world sees it. See time as God sees it. And give your time back to God. Because the philosophy of time as God sees it is something else. Time is gift. Time is gift. It's a gift. He gives you the time that you have. He's given you time today. It's his gift to you today. We're alive today. We have time. We have this moment. We don't know how many days we'll have. 60 or 70, 70 or 80 by reason of strength. It just depends really. The Bible says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart after wisdom. That means teach you to value each day as a gift from God. Because if it's a gift of God, you can give it back to him so that he can show you how to use your time. He can distribute your time. Because, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think this is true. There is enough time to do what God wants you to do. Because this God of mercy and grace is not asking you to do more than you've got the strength or the capacity or the time to do. What do you think to that? Is there enough time to do what God wants you to do? I think there is. So if I'm constantly running out of time, something's gone wrong. It probably is that I'm doing more than God is asking me to do. That's when the problem comes. So Paul says, think carefully about your time, redeem the time, bring it back to God out of the marketplace. 
because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The key to time management is understanding what the Lord's will is. How do you get to understand what the Lord's will is? Well, you stop and think about it. And in his presence, you reflect on your life and you ask him, should I be doing this or should I not? You don't just go ahead and do things, but you pause and you think, should I be doing this or should I not? And you ask God, you understand what the Lord's will is. And when you, when you are living from this centered place, then you can decide your time much more effectively. And you understand what the Lord's will is. And that is the thing that leads to this kind of spiritual life that Paul goes on to say. So we need to take time to understand what the Lord's will is. What his will is for me today. What his will is for me this week. And we need to think about things that come across our path. Is this what you want me to do, God? So that's uh, just thinking a little bit about uh, time uh, from point five. Let's go back to point three then. So in the midst of this now, I've got that understanding of time. I'm willing to stop and reflect and, and I know that I can give my time back to God and that God will allocate my time according to his priorities and if I do that then I will have enough time. doesn't mean I won't be busy but I will have enough time and strength to do what he is asking me to do. He won't overload me. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And part of living in the good of that is to develop a kind of rhythm or a pattern of life. Now on Monday I think Bishop Harold spoke about a rule of life and some of you would have been in that. Um, so I don't want to dwell too much on that but just maybe give you my slant upon it. What I understand by that is that life works best if there is a pattern to it and a flow and a rhythm to it. The whole of creation is about rhythm, isn't it? There's morning and evening. The tide goes out and the tide comes in. We live with the awareness of seasons and the change of the seasons. And we know that one year will move into another. There's a, there's a rhythm about it. And the rhythm that we're talking about here is the rhythm of God's grace. That God is constantly coming towards us in love. And we are responding to him. And then living our lives to the beat of heaven. Not the beat of earth, but the beat of heaven. The rhythm of heaven. So that might mean, on a daily basis, at some point, I just stop and I be still and I center myself upon God and I make connection with Him. Maybe just for a few minutes. In the busiest of days, it can just be for a few minutes. But if I'm truly connecting with the living God, before I go out into this world, I say, Father, we've got a busy day today. I pause to receive your strength and your grace. Guide my steps. Grant me your Holy Spirit to be the wind in my sails today. And off I go. And I'm living in dependency upon God, even in the busiest of days. And there may be moments during that day when I can stop again and I can just say, Father, be with me in this meeting that lies ahead of me. Be with me in this responsibility. And I can... In a sense, send those little arrow prayers upwards to God so that actually even in a busy day, I'm still connecting with God. You don't have to have had three hours of quiet time before you dare move from the house. You live in a relationship with him that is 24-7. But sometimes it's a few minutes at the start of the day. 
Then on a weekly basis, you can maybe take a few hours. It's what we might call Sabbath time with a small S. I'm not talking here about Sabbatarianism, which is when you're filled with rules and regulations of what you can and can't do. People tell me here that in Ballymena, the swings used to be chained up on a Sunday, a Sabbath day. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about, actually, God says, as my gift to you, I give you one day in this allocation of time which you don't need to do any work on. You can rest in me, you can worship, you can relax yourself, you can enjoy my creation, you can be refreshed and be renewed. It's called Sabbath. And it goes right back to when God created the world and on the seventh day he rested. He rested because all his work was done. And I think he rested and admired his handiwork Jewish scholars would tell us he rested because actually he was creating something very special. He was creating tranquility. And Adam was born on day six, created on day six. So he entered into his first day was Sabbath. It was a day off, a day of rest. He hadn't done anything. It was a day off. <laughs> hadn't earned it. But in God's economy... You begin with a day off. That's where you start with your Sabbath. And then you work out of that place of rest because you are rested. The world turns it upside down and it says, work first and then you can rest as a reward. No, God says Sabbath is a gift. You're no longer a slave. That's how slaves live the other way. My children live from a place of rest. You enter into my rest because this is my world and it's my purpose and I'm at work. And it doesn't depend upon you anyway. So you can relax, just relax yourself. And when you're relaxed and rested, then we'll do about the work and we'll do it together in partnership. That's what Sabbath is. God giving you permission to stop, to be still, to have some downtime as it were. And it takes faith actually to live according to the principle of Sabbath with a small s, because always the pressure is, if I don't do this, I'll not get it done. And so very quickly, that boundary that God has given us for the Sabbath, it gets overrun by, I'll just do this and I'll just do that, and so on. And we don't keep that sacred space, because we fear if we don't, then we'll be overwhelmed. But actually, God says, you can do this. And you'll have time to do all the things. And actually you'll work more efficiently and more effectively because you have been rested. And rest is a foundation stone. It's not the reward, it's the foundation stone. It's not what you do when you're exhausted and you collapse in a heap and you think, I need some time off here. No, it shouldn't be like that. It should be, this is my foundation stone. So the rhythm of Sabbath. And then some special times apart. I've... Sometimes the value of having a quiet day, maybe on a quarterly basis. We've introduced this into the little church that I belong to now. We, we have quiet days together. Uh, we, we go to a house of some members, a lovely house. It's in a nice, quiet village. And we've been teaching our people for the last two years how to establish this rhythm. And some people who are workers, they take that day off and they come. In fact, the two people that host it, we both got very responsible jobs. One is a pediatrician, the other works uh, for Yorkshire Water. Both got, but they, they, they take that time off because they see the value of pacing themselves. This is about pacing yourself. 
And uh, once a quarter, that's something that you can build in, a quiet day or something like that, time together with others just to be still. And then maybe, as we've said, the benefit of retreat. Perhaps also you may like to consider this under this heading, the benefit of finding a spiritual friend, a mentor, or a soul guide, somebody you can actually talk to and who can help you on your journey. Friends are so important to us in the spiritual life. And having good friends and friends with whom you can relax and relate and who will, will talk about spiritual things with you can be a great blessing to you. And again, you have to invest in that kind of person and maybe look for that kind of person. And somebody just to have somebody who will listen to you and who you can talk over what's happening in your life, how your relationship with God is. That's what we mean by a spiritual friend or a spiritual guide or a mentor. Why not think about looking for such a person who might be able to help you so that you don't carry the burden alone, but there is somebody to share with and uh, talk it over with. I know I'm giving you a lot of uh, advice here. I hope it's good advice, but there will be time for questions in a minute or two when uh, we get uh, through, through this. Number three. Oh, there's two number threes here. This is 3B. Begin to practice the presence of God. This is so crucial, I think, really. Begin to practice the presence of God. Begin to learn and understand that actually we live in a God-bathed world. That we do not go in and out of the presence of God, but we live in the presence of God. Paul says in, in the Acts there, chapter 17, this, this great verse, we're not sure is it his own words or is he quoting uh, from somebody else. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. So the whole of life is actually filled with God and we awake to his presence. We thought about the story of Jacob. Surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. I was not aware of it. Jacob became awake and aware of the presence of God that was all around him. And, and we do, we live in a world that is bathed in God's presence. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear then we can come alive to the presence of God in whatever we're doing. And whatever the task for the day is, that is God's will for me for that day. Whatever I'm called to do for that day, God is with me in that particular task. And I begin to find and discover God's presence everywhere. You, perhaps you know the story of Brother Lawrence. He worked in a monastery. His job was in the kitchens, washing the dishes. It was a big, large Monastery, lots of things to be done, but Brother Lawrence discovered, even as he was washing the pots and the pans and the dishes, cleaning up after everybody else, that he could keep his soul at peace and at rest in God. And so much did he exhibit the presence of God that people would come from all around just to talk to Brother Lawrence because they saw that this man had something really unique, really something special. So there is a little book which is about some letters uh, that, uh, that he wrote called Practicing the Presence of God. It's a good classic to read. He says this, God is everywhere in all places and there is no spot where we cannot draw near to him 
and hear him speaking in our hearts. With a little love, just a very little, we shall not find it hard. There's no place where he is not. You live and move and have your being in the presence of God. He's all around you. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you'll become attentive to God. So we begin to practice the presence of God. And then very much alongside that and connected with that is that we can sanctify our work. So that actually our work becomes our mission, our ministry, our expression of God's love in the world. Even our ordinary job. Uh, Ian and I were talking this morning at breakfast about our time at, at Bible college and so on. And how in those days there was no understanding actually that work was ministry. There was this strong divide between what you did in church, that was ministry. What you did the rest of the week was irrelevant. In fact, it's only in the last 10, 15 years that people have begun to awaken and say, no, that is not true. Our work is our ministry. This is where God sends most of us. Yes, he sends some overseas to be missionaries, and yes, he calls some to be ministers and pastors, but actually, most of us, we're doing ordinary jobs. But we are missionaries too. That's been something that's been emphasized this week. Whether you're teaching in a school, working in a hospital, in a factory, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're looking after your grandchildren, whether you're looking after your own children, whether you're looking after somebody else's children, that actually too is ministry. So that is what God is calling me to do. And sometimes that is really very demanding, and so I don't really need to feel guilty if I'm not doing other things. I don't need to think, oh, I'm not doing anything for God. Oh, wait a minute, you are. That's what God has given you to do. That's what he's called you to do. So there is no divide between our sacred and secular uh, aspects of our life. My work is my ministry and, and work is worship. So you can be praying about your work. You can be asking God to be with you in your work. Bless the place where you work. Bless the people that you work with. So it's actually part of your spiritual life as well. No sacred or secular divide. And then the final thing I want to say before we have some questions, is this. Start where you are. The Chinese have a saying, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And I know that sometimes when you come to a seminar like this, you hear all this good information. It can be a bit overwhelming because you think, well, my, my life is nowhere like that. And you can think that I've suddenly got to, ooh, I've got to be up there. By next Saturday, I want to be up there, but by next Saturday, you probably won't be up there if you're starting down here. You have to start somewhere. Start with the first thing, which is manageable for you in the context of your life. The stage of life we're at is very important in spiritual terms. Because each stage of life we go through has its own needs, its own challenges, and its own opportunities. And you have to adjust according to the stage of life which you're at. It changes and it varies. And there are actually some periods of life when to develop these spiritual disciplines is more challenging than others. Some seasons of life cause us to be extra busy. I think the hardest time to be a spiritual person is when you've got young children. 
It's very hard. I've been there. I've got children. I've lived with a baby that wouldn't sleep and all that kind of thing. It's very hard to be spiritual in those moments when you've got toddlers running around and so on. But you can find how to do these things in that context in a way which is appropriate to the demands that are upon you. Don't kind of set your standards too high. But because it is a life that we're living all the time and we're living it in God, it isn't, have I done my quiet time? Have I read my Bible? It's about a relationship with him that, it, that fills our entire being and goes on regardless of whether we've done the externals because it's something we carry inside us. And even in the busiest of times, we can work it out. But be kind to yourself. That's the other thing I would say. Be kind to yourself. Many of us, you know, we really strive at living the Christian life and we beat ourselves up and we try to do things and we fail and, and then that causes us to be discouraged so it gets even harder to do it. Don't do that. God is compassionate, merciful God. He understands our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He doesn't condemn us because sometimes we fail to do the things that we want to do. He is gracious towards us. We just pick ourselves up again and we say, Thank you, Lord, you're so merciful, so gracious. Condemnation usually comes from the enemy, from the devil, to discourage us. So just do what you can, be kind to yourself, and just be very natural in your walk with God. It's about living a life, really, and being who you are, living out of your identity. I'm God's beloved child. I know the Father loves me. His favor is upon me. His blessing is towards me. I just live to please him in the simplicity of that. Don't make it too complicated. Don't try too hard. Just live. Just be a human being alive with God inside you. And just a final thought before some questions is this. That hunger for God is what drives this. If I am hungry for God, then these things will come to me, in a sense, naturally and easily, because I have a longing for God, and, and that longing for God will find its expression. But this is what I want to say. Hunger for God is not a virtue, it is a gift. Hunger for God is not something you have as a virtue in sight. In fact, the Bible says, no one seeks after God, no, not one. And left to yourself, and this is true of me, if I am left to myself, I also kind of would become lethargic and drift away and find other things to occupy my mind and things to spend my time and money on and so on. Left to myself, that would happen to me. Apart from that God creates in me a hunger for himself. It's a gift. It's a movement of grace towards me. And therefore, one of my constant prayers is this. God, will you give me a hunger for yourself? And would you give me a love for this book, your word? And would you help me to keep pursuing you? And because he is a God of grace, he loves nothing more than to do that. He creates in a hunger inside us. A hunger and thirst after righteousness. Maybe that's what he's been working in you this week. Creating again a hunger and appetite for spiritual things. And then you know the, the guarantee of that. If God gives you that hunger, he will satisfy it. He will come to you. He will meet with you. He will speak to you. He will change and he will transform you. So let's uh, just pause there and give you opportunity for any questions.
Sorry, I've shared a lot of things, but I want to be as practical as I can. So if you've got questions, if you think, I'm not sure about that, don't understand it, how does that work out? Let's talk about it. I'll see if I can help at all. I don't say these things are hard to practice, uh, easy to practice. They're not. But they're not externals. We're not measuring our relationship with God by these things. They're helps to us. God will give us the grace if, if we seek after him. Yes, a question. Yes, mindfulness. Yes. Yes, it's very interesting. And this came up earlier on in the week. Mindfulness, it's very popular in secular uh, fields. In a sense, mindfulness is just the world's expression of what Christians have always practiced, which is contemplation. I told them before about a writer called Jean-Pierre de Cossard. He wrote a little, or really his sermons, his talks were collected into a little book called The Sacrament of the Present Moment. And he was talking about this concept of living in God's now, this present moment. Not living in the past. I mean, the past is important. We can learn from the past. But not worrying about what's happened in the past because you can't change it. Not living in the future because it hasn't happened yet. But actually living in God's now, in God's moment. And he called it the sacrament of the present moment. And it's, it actually is a very helpful uh, thing. The thing about mindfulness, as, as it's taught, is it operates in a vacuum. There is no God behind it. But it's very helpful in understanding how your mind works. It's helpful in understanding some skills actually to bring yourself into the present moment. But it works best when you understand that in him we live and move and have our being. Actually that God is behind the whole of this. And uh, you can practice the sacrament of the present moment and become more attentive to God. So I, I hope that helps. If you type in um, Christian mindfulness, there are at least two people I know who are teaching courses on mindfulness from a Christian perspective. Uh, uh, very helpfully, I think, as well. So the church was there already. It's just that we're not good at selling ourselves. People find other ways of doing it. Sorry, I think there's somebody here. Practicalities and mentoring, yes. Yes, there's a great book that I wrote. <laughs> Not blowing my own trumpet, but... It's called... Uh, it's called... Uh, what's it called? Spiritual Mentoring. <laughs> Spiritual Mentoring. Uh, but, and there are, there are lots of other books, and that will give you a list of uh, books. Mentoring is a great thing. If you can be alongside somebody. I think, you know, in a sense, we all should have somebody who's mentoring us, and we can all mentor somebody else. It's spiritual friendship. It's the journey on the Emmaus Road, just coming alongside people, helping them on their journey, being there to listen and to talk. But that little book, uh, uh, Spiritual Mentoring, uh, is very practical about how to do that. Really encourage it, Sharon, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. So the question is about Christian organizations that are very driven. How do you survive in such organizations? And that is a real problem. I don't know what it is about Christian organizations. We always try to do more than we have the resources for. I think it's uh, to do sometimes with vision and uh, thinking that uh, we, can, uh, we can do more than we've got the people to, for. And uh, so we overload people and then people burn out. And I'm all the time meeting with people in mission and in Christian churches, Christian ministry organizations, who are either burnt out or on the edge of it because of this very thing. So there is a work of education to be done. Some people are beginning to realize that actually you have to look after your staff. Uh, in the long run, it's better if you look after them well and give them uh, time uh, for themselves to grow spiritually because you will reap the benefits of that in the end. But, but it, it is true, so many Christian organizations, again, are living to the beat of the world, not the beat and rhythm of heaven itself. There is, at the heart of it is this issue, how do we do the work of God? How do we actually do it? John 15 tells us how we do it. We do it because we abide in him. But we tend to take the responsibility on our own shoulders and we tend to think we'll do it by working hard and we'll do it because we do more and we'll keep going. But it is the way to burnout and disillusionment and despair for many, many people really. So sometimes we may need to do less in order to achieve more. More of what God wants. So sometimes organizations themselves need to practice the discipline of stopping to stop and think and to reflect and say, where are we and what is God saying to us and just have some breathing time. Some organizations are actually very good at caring for their people. I hope that helps a little bit. Yes. It appears evident from what you were saying that there's a growing interest among evangelicals in the contemplative disciplines. Have you heard why that might be at the moment? Yeah, uh, I do believe that there is a growing interest amongst evangelicals in the contemplative, and that is because the evangelical tradition by itself is not sufficient. I like to think of a cord of three strands, in a sense. The evangelical, the charismatic, and the contemplative, each has something to offer. The evangelical particularly brings to us pardon. That would be the emphasis. The cross, the death of Jesus, forgiveness, new life, pardon. The charismatic reminds us that we operate in the dimension of the spirit. The word there is power. We have power to get the job done. But the third dimension is the contemplative, and that brings us presence, the third P, presence. That is that what we do carries the presence of God. And we work from this place of rest. Therefore we can achieve the things that we, we, God is calling us to do. Within evangelicalism and the charismatic movement, in the DNA is this push to be striving to always do more, more, more. And that's why it's inadequate. Because there is nothing that puts a brake on it and says, hang on a minute, slow down. Find your identity in, in Christ. That's what the contemplative tradition is. And it says, you know, get in touch with the inner life 
and live from the inside out, and then the outer life will be fruitful and effective. So it is a strand of three chords, I think. And you're quite right, there's a, a growing interest in this topic for evangelicals and for charismatic people too, whatever tradition people come from. And don't be afraid of it because it's, it's wonderful actually. We were talking last night about uh, Roman Catholicism, but the Roman Catholic tradition has a long history of nurturing the inner life. They've never been so concerned about programs and schemes and all this, but they have this tremendous history of the inner life. And when I first began to um, discover the contemplative strand, I began to find myself writing people and suddenly realizing, actually, this was a Roman Catholic writer. <laughs> but I couldn't tell any difference because they were talking about this inner life. And, and I would, was kind of brought up to have that same kind of suspicion, not as bad as over here, but being at an evangelical Bible college, Roman Catholicism, and, and Roman Catholic writers were a no-go area. And it was suddenly this door into a library opened up to me and there were all these wonderful spiritual truths there. <laughs> it was like a room that had been locked and closed and I was told you shouldn't go in there. And then I find there's such riches and such wonderful uh, things of discovery. One of my favorite writers is a man called Henry Nouwen. If you read Henry Nouwen, you would not know that you were reading the writings of a Roman Catholic. He is just so full of God. And this concept, I understood my belovedness through reading Henry Nouwen's little book, The Return of the Prodigal. If you want a spiritual book to set your heart on fire, The Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nouwen. Amazing book. You know it? Yeah, blew you apart. Yeah, that's right. It did me too. Thank you for that. How are we doing? It's just about time. One last thing. I want to pray for you then before we go. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the drabness of living in Yorkshire, I have to say. People are so miserable eh, in Britain. It is it's quite true. I lived in Malaysia. It's an Islamic country, but... In Malaysia, the, the women, they don't wear black. They wear bright colors, beautiful headscarves, and they're lovely, attractive ladies. And you see people are happy. They're smiling. You come back to Yorkshire, they're all huddled up in gray overcoats. It's raining, and they're not smiling, and they're grumpy. You think, whoa, what a world this is. <laughs> that was the hardest thing, I have to say. It still is, actually. Yorkshire Tourist Board, yeah. It's just where I live. Let me pray for you. I woke up this morning with the words of a hymn, an ancient hymn uh, on my mind, and an ancient prayer. And I want to use both of them just to finish with. This is the hymn, it's a prayer. Come down, O love divine, fill thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. O oh, comforter, draw near, within my heart appear, and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. And then this is the ancient prayer from Richard of Chichester. Dear God, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, 
to follow thee more nearly day by day. Lord, let this be our experience today. O comforter, draw near. Within our hearts appear, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for staying the distance. If you've been there three times, you deserve the clap. Thank you.